Hi friends. So last week I was uh, really busy working on my class prep for my, the course I'm teaching at Horizon. And so it was a, a little after five in the afternoon on Wednesday the 6th, I came home and I opened up my social uh, networks for the first time in five hours and was like, oh my goodness, what did I miss? Uh, and there was all this news about how Trump supporters had listened to his call to march on the Capitol and, had, and in fact made it past the police and taken over the building in this short period of time. Couldn't believe it. I was like, I am living through another 9-11 moment in which people will ask, where were you when? I couldn't pull myself away from the news for the rest of the day. Now, I, I've made no effort to hide uh, the, fi the fact that I find Trump uh, problematic on many levels. And what I have found even more troubling is this strident support of Christians who evidently worship Trump. The, the sad reality is that Trumpism and evangelical Christians are deeply intertwined and the events that happened at the Capitol cannot be separated from the Christian support for him. We saw this in the pictures that came out, people holding banners, Jesus, uh, Jesus saves. We saw flags that said, Jesus is my savior, Trump is my president. Um, we saw an image of a cross erected at the Capitol and some person wearing a Trump flag bowing before the cross. There was all kinds of religious symbolism that has been co-opted into a nationalistic faith. What we saw south of the border, this Christian nationalism, is one of the deadly idolatries of our age. And it isn't just south of the border. Trump flags can be bought here. An MP in our from a federal party uh, was seen wearing a picture, uh, wearing a mega hat. Uh, there was even a pro-Trump rally in downtown Vancouver where a lady was holding a sign that said, Bible over logic over science 100%. So Christian nationalism isn't new. Uh, it, it is this unholy union, a, a belief in the exceptionalism of your own country, that God blesses it in some unique way, and that Christians are called to enforce Christian morality on the world in the country that we live in. And so Christians around the world, we all have to wrestle with the reality that we live as sojourners in a place. But we also have this rootedness of being human and living in a country. Roxy Cavey writes in his book, The End of Religion, uh, that this is an unholy alliance of religion and politics always wreaks havoc by building a society on the myth of all myths, that this universe is run by coercive power rather than humble love. I love my country. I am deeply thankful for the place that I live. I hope and pray that God will bless it. I pray for my country's leaders. But I am also aware that countries or empires have their own agendas that don't always align with the kingdom of God. Or as Matthew is going to call it, out of respect for the Jewish tradition that doesn't use the word God, the kingdom of heaven. The irony of a group of people violently fighting for their chosen one on January 6th is strong. Because January 6th on our church calendar is Epiphany, the day in which a caravan of pagan astrologers appear and worship a child, the newborn king. So right at the beginning of his gospel, Matthew is going to frame two different things that bookend the entire gospel. First is that in chapter 1, we are told that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. 
The end of the gospel ends with the promise that Jesus will be with us until the end of the age. It is this promise of presence. It's baked right into the gospel from start to finish. The second thing that Matthew frames up is a world in which there are competing kingdoms or that are, they're going to be at war with one another. Maybe a, another way to say that, a better way, is that there is a battle between kingdom of God and empire. And that is going to shape the whole story. The kingdom of God will stand in contrast to the empire of Rome and every empire that will follow. So Jesus is named in the genealogy in chapter 1 as the true king of Israel. And Herod, who we're going to talk about in a minute, was an imposter, a puppet, a ruler under Caesar Augustus. And the story is going to end in Matthew with Jesus' enthronement, his coronation as king, where he will receive a crown of thorns and a rugged cross as a throne, and Pilate will nail the charge above his head, King of the Jews. From the first moment to the last in this story, we are shown over and over that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of Jesus, is not like any other kingdom we have known, and that the way of Jesus is fundamentally different. Herod the Great looms large in this passage, chapter 1 and chapter 2. So since the time of exile, Israel hadn't had a functioning monarchy. The kings and queens that they did have certainly couldn't be traced back to David's family. Herod the Great is no exception. He has no royal blood. He was a military leader, a violent, scheming politician. We know that Herod the Great gained power in Judea with Roman backing. Herod was a friend of Mark Antony, who maybe you've heard of. But if you haven't heard of him, I guarantee that you have heard of Mark Antony's mistress, Queen Cleopatra, who really didn't like Herod. When Octavian, Caesar Augustus, defeats Mark Antony, Herod slyly promises to be as loyal to Caesar as he was to Mark Antony. Caesar agrees and places him as king over Israel. Herod names a city for Caesar. He spends great deals of money building a temple in honor of Caesar. Now Herod also, not only was he a militaristic leader who got placed by Rome to be king, he also wasn't even an ethnic Jew. He was an Edomite, and his ancestors had been forcibly converted to Judaism. However, like I said, he was very politically astute, and so he built the Jews one of the world's largest and most extravagant temples. Herod was also violent. One of his first acts as he gained power was to execute all the members of the old Jewish council and replace them with his own supporters. When a young religious leader uh, went into the temple and took down uh, the golden eagle that Herod had put there, he had the man executed. Which I just find such an interesting story given the risk of nationalism today and, and faith. Like Herod puts a golden eagle, the, the Roman flag, so to speak, in the temple. And some devoted religious Jew says, this isn't right. We can't have nationalism in our faith mixing here. And so he goes and he takes it down at the cost of his own life. Herod's brother-in-law becomes more popular than Herod. And so Herod arranges a drowning accident in a pool that archaeology has now shown us to be very shallow. Uh, there are many other violent acts from a very violent man, but perhaps the most revealing is that when Herod was on his deathbed, he ordered that many Jewish religious, uh, Jewish leaders and nobles be arrested and imprisoned so that when Herod himself died, he had orders that they would all be killed so that there would be mourning in the streets and not celebration at his death. I find this story told to us in Matthew chapter 2 very compelling. It's rich and it's challenging. 
So my mom sent me a, a story the other day about my great-grandfather's cousin who won the Order of Canada for her work with prisoners and poor people in the Yukon in British Columbia. How this amazing woman, Hilda Hellaby, how her faith moved her to live on almost nothing so that she could give everything away to the poor. I, I think about how I tell my own kids about my grandpa, their great-grandfather, who was a chemist, and uh, how my grandma told me that when he would go to Japan, everybody wanted to talk to him. He was almost a celebrity because of his work in chemistry and batteries, and so when he was speaking at a conference, everybody wanted to speak with Dr. Irish. And, and then I think about the conversations late at night must have been like for Joseph, sitting with his father, Jacob, uh, telling the story of how once Long ago, their ancestor was none other than King David himself. How they come from this line of monarchs and how their scriptures tell us that one day their fortunes would be restored, that they would no longer be peasants, but that one day they would be king again and they would have a line of kings that would never end and that this is the promise of God. But shh, shh, keep that part quiet. Don't let Herod's spies hear anything about how we are kings or from a family of kings. That will only end in violence. Remember, Herod killed his favorite wife over a rumor. He kills his sons and wives as if they are nothing and they mean nothing. So shh, remember, we are part of the royal line of David and God has promised that one day we will be kings again. But shh, keep that quiet for now. One day, one day. And then one day a caravan of pagan magicians from another country show up at the center of power and wealth and they walk into this ornate palace and they ask, to, but to them must have just been a really innocent question, uh, where's the king, newborn king of the Jews? We have seen his star in the east and we have come to honor him. Boom! Uh, political dynamite! The Magi walk into Herod's palace, light a match, and watch a powder keg it's full of fear and suspicion and puffed-up ambition and violence and hate and manipulation, and the whole thing explodes. And in contrast of the kingdom and empire is found all through the gospel, but here it is revealed so clearly because Herod sits in Jerusalem, the center of power politically and religiously. Herod sits with the support of Caesar, the threat of violence and power that are ever present with him. And Jesus arrives on the scene nine kilometers away from that center of power in a small, inconsequential place inhabited by people who live in the margins, a community of peasants like Joseph and Mary. As we read the story, Herod recovers quickly. He makes a plan. He sends the Magi off to find this king and begins to make a plan to destroy his new rival. When the Magi are warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, Herod gets even more angry and he sends his soldiers to kill all the male children in Bethlehem and the surrounding territory who are under the age of two. We don't know how many children that is, but we do know that massacres were nothing new to Herod. This sort of action is very believable from what we know of him from historical records. Herod also becomes a stand-in for the kind of kings and empires that stand opposed to the way of Jesus. Herod becomes the new Pharaoh, quick to kill boys of Israel because of his own fear and ambition. Throughout the Gospel of Matthew, we will see Matthew showing how Jesus' life summarizes and retells the story of Israel. There are many themes that show Jesus as a new Moses. In all of this, Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel. He will live the story Israel was meant to and show the world what it means to be the faithful people of God. 
And so Jesus, as a baby, flees to Egypt for safety. Like Moses, he escapes the destruction of Israelite boys. One of the things that I find so compelling about the story of Jesus is this. It is so different than anything else. I'm in love with a Jesus who shows us how to live powerfully and differently in this world. I'm in love with Jesus who shows us a different way to live powerfully in this world. In a world in which might makes right, that wants to force its ideas and morals and behaviors onto others, I love that God just takes a huge sidestep and leaves it all behind. Luke 3 verse 1, it says, In the 15th year of the rule of Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea, and Herod was ruler over Galilee, his brother Philip was ruler over Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was ruler over Albini, during the high priesthood of Ananias and Caiaphas, God's word came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Rich Villados notes that Luke lists all of the political and religious leaders in power and then notes how the word of God bypasses them and comes to John in the wilderness. In Matthew, Jesus is not born in the halls of power, but in an out-of-the-water, out-of-the-way, backwater community. Jesus doesn't wield power, doesn't have armies to do his bidding, no soldiers to send to reinforce his will. Enforce his will. Instead, he is vulnerable. He becomes a political refugee, hiding in a foreign country. He doesn't come to comfort and ease. And instead of that being a hindrance, it is actually the breeding ground for the power of the kingdom of God, which has outlasted Rome and every empire since. Love is this powerful source, this unrelenting force that does not need swords or guns or violence or protests to have its way. It incessantly, It is incessantly moving and wooing and winning the hearts and minds of people. I've become fairly convinced over the last 10 years or so that one of the problems that a lot of Christians have is that we don't actually trust that power. We don't actually trust the Spirit of God to move through us and in us and to transform us and to transform our world, that we can be part of that inbreaking of the kingdom of God. And so we feel like we have to do our own thing to create it. What historian uh, Kristen Kobe's Dumez observes is that for many white evangelical Christians, Donald Trump was the fulfillment rather than the betrayal of white evangelicals' most deeply held beliefs. For the last 75 years, evangelical Christians have been replacing the Jesus of the Gospels with an idol of rugged masculinity and Christian nationalism. One celebrity pastor once <clears throat> said, in Revelation, Jesus is a prize fighter with a tattoo down his leg and a sword in his hand and a commitment to make someone bleed. That is a guy I can worship. I cannot worship the hippie diaper halo Christ because I cannot worship a guy I can beat up. Listen, that is not some fringe crazy voice. That comes from one of the most listened to pastors of the last decade. Not only is that horrible exegesis of the text, it is the full revelation of the distortion of the gospel of Jesus. What kind of nonsense is this? I can't worship a guy I can beat up. That's evil. 
The power of Jesus was that he was beaten up, that he self-sacrificed, that he gave himself up for the salvation of the world. And yet this preacher portrays exactly the sort of Messiah that many evangelical Christians want. They want Jesus to be a hyper-masculine, violent king who will make their political agenda his, who will only love the people they love and will judge and destroy all of those who don't agree. So SNL, Saturday Night Live, did a skit years ago in which the resurrected Jesus comes back on Easter like Rambo. He carries a gun. He shoots and kills everyone who doesn't believe in him. It seems heretical because it is, and yet it doesn't sound so different than what that preacher was saying about his audience. I believe in a Jesus with a commitment to make somebody bleed. That's not the story found in the Gospel of Matthew. The ones who hold political might are left out of the story of God. I love what Daniela Strickland or Danielle Strickland writes. She says, The reason Jesus is the perfect picture of power is that he is both power and love personified. Love, far from just an emotional feeling, is an eternal force of transformation. What became crystal clear to me on the 6th is that our white North American evangelicalism is deeply broken. Knew that already. Now it can't be any more clear. I don't know if the word evangelical can be saved. The thing that it historically stood for has been lost to Trumpism, racism, and nationalism. It is difficult for me to see people who claim to follow Jesus and claim to stand for truth standing holding a sign that says Bible over logic over science 100%. One of the most common phrases that I've heard on the 6th and ever and since has been this, this lie. This isn't who we are. Friends, the, the first step... To any change is to acknowledge this is exactly who we are. The fruit of the seeds of our theology and preaching and teaching and discipleship of the last 75 years are now bearing fruit. And it is the fruit of nationalism and racism and a complete willingness to ignore reason, logic, science, authorities, and truth. Esteemed Old Testament uh, scholar Walter Brueggemann writes, The crisis with the U.S. church has almost nothing to do with being liberal or conservative. It has to do with giving up the faith and discipline of our baptism and settling for a common, generic U.S. identity that is part patriotism, part consumerism, part violence, and part affluence. The Magi assumed that King Jesus would be found in the halls of political and religious influence, but quickly learned that God works in a different way. They left those golden halls and golden idols of the empire and found God in flesh and worshipped him. Can I suggest to you that what we saw south of the border is actually not that different than the streams and currents that flow in much of our Christian faith here in Canada? Because of influences and things around us, those those things are quieter, perhaps not as violent, but those idols of patriotism, consumerism, violence, affluence, and I will add racism here as well, affect each one of us as much as our brothers and sisters south of the border. I know that each of those things battles for my heart. I am often more comfortable in my identity as a Canadian than I am as a citizen of the kingdom of God. So let's not let those tendencies live in our hearts. And instead of pretending that's not who we are, instead of pretending they don't live there, instead of lying to ourselves, let us speak the truth. Acknowledge that sin lives there and that, so that healing can begin. 
I don't know if evangelicalism can be saved. I do know that evangelicalism is going to go through a massive reckoning. The massive numbers of young people that have been leaving the church are not leaving because they don't love Jesus. It's because the churches they have been attending are more in love with empire than kingdom. And like I said last week, healing can only happen if you acknowledge the wound, if you remove the knife, if you stitch up the wound, you watch for infections, you take the appropriate actions to change and watch and make sure that it changes. The Christian word for that is repentance. We must repent of the idols that we have built, the incorrect gods that we have looked to to give us meaning and security and purpose and worth and prosperity and comfort. I wonder if those magi struggled as they rode away from Jerusalem. It must have been difficult to leave behind all those expectations, all that wealth, all that power. It must have been strange following a star to some little town. But verse 10 says, when they saw the star, they were filled with joy. Because there is a freedom that comes as we discover the path that we were meant to be on. You have to see the temple, you have to see the halls of power, and then you have to leave them. Because that's not the road we were called to be on. Verse 11 then, chapter 2, verse 11. They entered the house, saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and they worshipped him. King Jesus is the only one worthy of a bended knee. No country, no political party, no job, no ideology, only King Jesus. Friends, these are the days in which the church is being seduced to follow the empire. But that union will only end in tragedy. And so repent, turn, follow the crucified Jesus that shows us that love is the only way. And the way forward is not only individual repentance, but communal. The kingdom of God is meant to be a communal light, a world, a radical a light to the world showing the radical way of King Jesus and his love. We will see in the next few weeks as we come to Sermon on the Mount, the gospel is political because it is lived out in the community of the world. And, and so let me close with this call from Tish uh, Warren Harrison. Harrison Warren. She writes, to move forward, Christians must reconstruct communities where we can know and speak truth, serve the needy and the poor, love our neighbors, learn to be poor in spirit, rejoice in suffering, and witness to the light of Christ amid darkness. And so may this be true for our community here in Saskatoon. Grace and peace.